Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Folklore, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm joined by Professor Li Jun Zhang and Ziying Yu uh, to talk about their recently published edited volume, Chinese Folklore Studies Today, Discourse and Practice, published in 2019 with the Indiana University Press. Uh, Professor Zhang is an assistant professor in folklore studies at George Mason University, and Ziying is, or Professor Yo is visiting assistant professor of Chinese and East Asian studies at the College of Worcester. Uh, Ziying and Li Jun, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for having me too. Uh, so to start off, um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to just uh, ask you sort of the standard first question. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? And we'll start, maybe start with uh, Ziying. What is your folklore origin story? It was a long story. Uh, I was brought up by my grandparents in the countryside in Henan province, which is located in the central part of China. Since my early years, I was exposed to traditional ways of life in the rural village. Uh, my grandparents worked in their farmland. They also planted all kinds of vegetables in their gardens. We celebrated uh, traditional festivals together, and my grandma often uh, told me all kinds of stories. So folklore was everywhere around me, but I didn't know that it was an important field until I took a course in folk literature, uh, literature during my junior year at Henan Normal University. Later, I went to study folk literature in the Chinese department uh, at Beijing University. I earned my MA degree there. My advisor was uh, Chen Yongchao, who specialized in Chinese mythology and legends. He launched the online youth forum on folk culture with other young folklorists. And I worked as the website administrator for several years. During that time, I assisted with uh, some online meetings and also attended many important folklore meetings. I got to know many great folklorists in China, uh, including Chao Gejin, Damo Chibumo, Yang Lihui, and Andermin, who inspired me to study folklore further in the U.S. I earned my uh, master's degree in folklore at the University of Oregon in 2009, and then earned my uh, PhD in East Asian Languages and Literatures with a concentration on Chinese folklore studies at the Ohio State University in 2015. My advisor was uh, Professor Mark Bender, who is a brilliant scholar, also a great uh, friend of mine. So at OSU, I took courses with many top folklorists, uh, including Margaret Mills, Amy Schumann, Dorothy Noyce, and Mario Kaplan. The Center for Folklore Studies at OSU is like an intellectual home for me, and it connected with it connected me with many great folklorists all over the world, 
including you, Tim. Actually, uh, three contributors of this book and two translators are all affiliated with this center. I'm very grateful to all my professors and friends at the center for their tremendous help and support, always, always. So this is my folklore origin story. Uh, thank you. Flatter, flattery will get you everywhere. Um, and 2015 was a good vintage in Ohio State Folklore Studies, if I do say so myself. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> being when I also got my PhD. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, thank you. And Li Jun, what's your folklore origin story? Uh, I think some part of my uh, story or experience is similar to Zing's. I mean, you will see the p- pattern. So I grew up in a rural area in China, and then I went to study folklore in Beijing, and and then I came to the United States and got my PhD degree. So when I was little, I read. I think I, I read a lot of like local stories, like such as legends related. To the to the daffodil, which is a famous flower in my hometown in Fujian, so I I read a lot of that kind of story and story of stories about Wu Yishan, so like how Wu Yishan connects to like sort of fairies or goddess, um, but. But when I went to Beijing for my uh, bachelor studies, I actually majored in English. So I was studying English and uh, English literature. Uh, at the time, I didn't know anything about folklore. I, um, uh, but. Uh, I started at Beijing Normal University, uh, which is one of the major centers for folklore studies in China. And for my last year of my uh, undergraduate education, I went to sit in a selective class of folklore taught by uh, the folklorist Dong Xiaoping. And then at that time, I was fascinated by, by the class. And, and, and then I also realized that folklore was what I really, what I really want to study and what I was really interested in. So I I started uh, to uh, apply, but or in the Chinese context, you need to take the entrance exam for the graduate study. So I I bought books uh, about uh, folklore studies, and also we need to need to take exams on sociology. So I also bought books and to study 
like sociology, and and then I got admitted in a master program at Beijing Normal University. So during my study at Beijing Normal University, and、uh, Chinese folklore society and American folklore society were working on developing closer collaborative relationship through all kinds of activities. There were exchange activities, and there were scholars visiting、uh, universities. In China and giving lectures, and also that is in the leadership、uh, in the、uh, folklore societies were working on long term strategic planning on on com- cross national by national communication and collaboration. So I got. In contact with American folklorists through my participation in these activities, either as a graduate student or as an English interpreter, and and in this process, I got to know more about American folklore studies, um, which, uh. Led to my application to the、uh, PhD program at Indiana University. So、um, that's how I started folklore studies, and then how I came to the United States and continue my. Folklore education, and now continue my career here in the United States as a folklorist. That's fantastic.、Um, I, I love our origin stories, just because there's always a little bit of accident and always a little bit of on purpose in these folk in these origin stories.、Um, right. So continuing with that theme of sort of accident and on purpose, I guess. How, can you tell us a little bit about the story of this book? I understand that. I mean, this is sort of worth knowing. What is the what is the background? How did this story? How did how did Chinese folklore studies today? This volume come to be. Uh, I think the story behind the book it's also connected to um what I said about um between the. Uh, American folklore society and Chinese folklore society, and their the development of their collaborative relationship. So, as stated in our volume,、uh, this book was initiated by conversations between Chinese and American folklorists at the 2015 American Folklore Society annual meeting. Held in Long Beach, California. So at the conference,、uh, Ziying and I attended a forum called "China and U.S. Folklore Collaborations: A Progress Report."、Um, the the forum was chaired by then executive director of American Folklore Society, Tim Lloyd.
So that's that forum was uh, organized. I think at the end of the uh, first phase of the American and is this first phase the second phase of the American Folklore Society and Chinese Folklore Folklore Society collaboration, which officially I think started from two thousand eight. Um, so since 2008, there had been a lot of um, exchange and communication activities and events organized by the two societies. Um, and then at this forum um, with the speakers, including then president of the uh, Chinese Folklore Society, Cao Gejing, and then president of American Folklore Society, Michael and Williams. And the speakers not only talk about the significant progress and achievements of the American Folklore Society and Chinese Folklore Society collaborative projects and activities. They also reflected on uh, further work needed to be done. Um, or they, I mean, they, they, there was reflexive discussions on what else we need to do or what other things that we can do to further bridge the American and Chinese uh, folklore academia. So one thing that uh, both the speakers and the audience at the forum, including Ziying and me, agreed on is that there was a need to introduce scholarship on Chinese folklore studies for American folklorists or, or, or for English-speaking audience in general. So with the inspirations from the forum, Zin and I went to talk with the director of Indiana University Press, uh, Gary Durham, Durham about our initial ideas of the volume. And he was very enthusiastic and supportive about the idea. And he asked us to submit a proposal about the conference. So when we um, came back from the conference, we started to talk with uh, some uh, scholars uh, who study um, Chinese folklore. Um, and then we assembled a small group of junior scholars whose research covers a range of important topics. Uh, we think we think it would illustrate the diversity and dynamics 
of contemporary Chinese folklore studies. Um, so I think that's the story behind the book. Uh, it's, I, I think it's great. I think it's absolutely right that, you know, many Western or many Chinese scholars are much more familiar with Western folklore theory and with some of the research that has been done than the other way around, than Western scholars are with folklore theories that have, or, or folklore research that is being done in China. So uh, right. yeah, I think it's absolutely um, spot on. And, and this volume makes a great contribution to that. Um, and that, I guess, kind of takes us into, um, into the volume itself. Uh, and it, it so so it begins with this introduction, um, talking about the history and trends of Chinese folklore studies. Um, Li Jun, can you give a brief overview of some of the major historical trends of Chinese folklore studies over the last sort of hundred years that the discipline has existed? Mm-hmm. So, uh, China has a long history of collecting what we now would categorize as oral tradition, including myth, folk tales, and ballads, uh, um, as well as other other aspects of folk culture. Um, So there's a long history of collecting and documenting and folk culture in various forms. But before the 20th century, most of these materials were scattered in um, literary, historical, geographical, agricultural, and other works. Um, So... uh, in, in the first chapter of our book, uh, we we provide we provide a brief history of Chinese folklore scholarship from the early twentieth century to the present, um, to help the audience have a better understanding of the trajectory of folklore studies in China and the particular political, social, and cultural context within which the discipline has been shaped and developed. So, um, because during this one century journey uh, for Chinese folklore studies, uh, it has been intertwined with Political, ide- uh, political ideologies and social transformations. Um, so uh, the, the growing interest in folklore in China in the early 20th century was closely related to the idea of romantic nationalism in the context of political chaos within the nation, and also the pressure exacted by foreign powers. So 
at that time, um, there was the what we call the May Fourth Movement, um, which was an anti-traditionalism and anti-elitism movement, and it was also an anti. Imperialist movement uh, generated by the upsurge of Chinese nationalism and populism. So um, at that time, there was the idea of going to the people. So I mean, before that, China had the long history of. Um, promoting or the traditionalism or elitism, elitism uh, culture, like the classics. And during this time, um, people were started to paying. More attention to what they call the mass, the masses, the common people, and then see the value of the culture of the common people as a new、uh, cultural and political power,、um, and then. Among these movements, one of them was the what we call the folk literature movement.、Uh, it started with the activity of、uh, collecting ballad and folk song, and、uh, also、uh, publishing these uh, collected uh, folk materials.、Um, And then, but so this this was kind of the first stage of、um, folklore studies in China、um, in the last century. And then the second imp- great impact on the folklore studies. Was the Sino-Japanese War, the Second Sino-Japanese War, and the Civil War from the nineteen thirties to nineteen forties? So、uh, these wars forced most of the academic institutes to move to the border regions in southwest and northeast. Northwest China.、Um, so the culture and society of these border regions were barely touched by Chinese social sciences before this period.、Um, so this、um, gives、uh, this situation. Provides scholars the opportunity to start 
and the, their their study of the folk culture in these border regions, which were um, more closely um, associated with the ethnic minority groups. Um, and then they, the scholars collected uh, a lot of uh, data relating to ethnic language, ethnic uh, folk oral tradition, uh, also ethnic um, practice of folk religion, and, and also their social organizations. Um, so this was before the founding of the People's Republic of China. Um, the, in the 1950s, uh, after the People's Republic of China was founded, uh, one of the major cultural and also political activities that have long-lasting impact on folklore studies in China was what we call the nationwide national nationality identification um, in Chinese Minzu Shibie. The uh, this was influenced by the Russian standards to differentiate ethnic groups. And the traits applied in the identification were common language and customs, religion, historical roots and continuity, territory, stable uh, uh, cultural continuity and self-identification. So after this uh, na nationality identification, um, the people in China were grouped or identified into what we now called the major Han and the, the identified 55 minority nationalities. And even though now more and more scholars are beginning to reflect and redefine the notion of nationality, the, uh, in Chinese we call Minzu, but the notion of multinationality within a unified nation with, um, has set the framework for many folklorists to celebrate and study the diversity and richness of Chinese culture. Um, so, and, and then after that, we, we know that there were cultural revolution, which kind of um, abolished the, the folklore as an academic discipline. Um, and, and then 
only after the end of the Cultural Revolution in the late 1970s that um, the uh, folklore studies in China regained its status as an academic discipline. Um, the Chinese Folklore Society was established in 1980 and 1983. Um, and then after that, I think there was Chinese Folklore Studies experienced a fast uh, development, uh, especially entering the 21st century. Um, the heritage studies have attracted uh, folklorists' attention in an unprecedented large scale, um, which also contributes to the expansion of Chinese folklore studies in the last two to three decades. That's brilliant. That's a lot of history to cover in a short period of time. Um, but I think it, I think it lays important groundwork and I think it sort of sets us up for some of the things that will come, that come in the, in the ensuing chapters. Um, and, and so the introduction is mostly this historical look at Chinese folklore studies and its trends. Uh, seeing, then we move over to chapter one and this is a contribution by Yong Yi Yue. Uh, about uh, everyday life and childbirth, um, and talking and using that as a way to discuss urban folklore studies. Um, can you talk about the importance of this contribution and how how it helps us to understand modern Chinese folklore studies? Uh, thank you for the great question. Uh, Yong Yi Yue was a professor of folklore at Institute of Folk Literature. Uh, at Beijing Normal University. And now he's the professor in the School of Sociology and Population Studies at the Ming University of China. So he has published numerous articles and 11 books. Um, he specialized in uh, popular religion, temple files, and urban folklore. Yong Yi Yue is actually reviewed as the best folklorist among the post-17 generation. So the post-17 is a, a colloquial term to describe Chinese people born in the 1970s. In his chapter, uh, Yong Yi Yue uh, presents a profound discussion on the topic of urban folklore in his ethnographic study of childbirth customer in the cosmopolitan city of Beijing. As shown by his research, the rural and the urban are intertwined and interacting uh, cultural space rather than separated spaces, isolated and contrasted to each other. So as he shows, that is the influence between rural and urban cultural elements uh, is regarded as a more uh, complex interactive process rather than one direction assimilation. Uh, in particular, uh, Yong Yi Yue proposes the concept of urban folklore as a quote a way of knowing and uh, an 
epistemological paradigm quote ends. He challenges the conventional disciplinary conception that regards urban folklore as studies of people and practice in urban cities. Rather, he claims that urban folklore should shift its study subject toward the tendency of rural urban integration and examine it as a dynamic social and cultural process in the frame of modernity, especially when China is facing the fact that most cities have become cities of migration due to the large number of migrant workers. I think um, overall, uh, I want to highlight uh, his conclusion. So Yue wrote in his conclusion in page 56, uh, quote, as an epistemological paradigm, urban folklore studies, that is, the new Chinese folklore studies concerned with modernity, not folklore studies focusing on urban subjects, should intend to observe, describe, and analyze the complexity, diversity, uncertainty, or uh, probability of this dynamic process. Overall, U.S. research clearly shows how contemporary folklorists take a more comprehensive and factual approach to study the transmission, transformation, and reproduction of folklore in people's daily life in contemporary China. That's really fascinating. And I think I think the idea of taking this as a new sort of uh, way of knowing or an epistemological approach, and particularly one that's about modernity and not just sort of focused on urban subjects is a really interesting sort of um, invitation to study uh, folklore and folk cultures in China more broadly. That's really excellent. Um, Thank following you. This, following this, we have a chapter um, that points to important trends of gender in China. Um, and I was wondering if you could sort of introduce us to the chapter and sort of what its main uh, case study is, but also um, how does the move, and, and it seems to be that there's sort of a, a move from women to female folklore practitioners. And what does that tell us about women's folklore studies in China? <laughs> Thank you for this great question. Uh, this chapter uh, is written by uh, Jun Xiaowang, uh, who is an associate professor of folklore at East China Normal University. Uh, her research focus is on the history of women's folklore studies in China and the individual life history of craftswomen. So in this chapter, uh, Junxia uh, gave a wonderful survey about women's folklore studies in China uh, from 1910s up to now. Um, he, she uh, traces the history uh, and the development of women's folklore studies in the last century and perceives the 1980s and 1990s as a turning point where the focus of studies on women's folklore in China shifted from treating women as an abstract group and calling for the liberation of women from oppression in specific historical periods to treating women as individual uh, quote, female folklore practitioners, quote, ends. 
and paying attention to their everyday life practices in a specific social network. So her case study is about a woman, uh, a woman called Shuangling, uh, in from Sanxi Province in in the eastern part of China. So applying the model of uh, and and analytical tool of strong relationship and weak relationship, Jinxia studies the Liangjia kinship relationship practice. The Liangjia refers to a married uh, a married woman's parents' home or family. And also uh, gift giving of Shuangming. Uh, she examines the formation and the practice of uh, common people's gender conceptions in their everyday life. Um, and also in their life fields. Based on her case study, Junxia argues that although uh, gender equality as a so-called basic state policy is today legitimized in China at the institutional and ideological levels, it didn't mean that gender equality has been achieved in individuals' daily practice in communities. So the Patriarchy as a kind of long-lasting traditional thought and family structure continues to deeply influence uh, community members' conceptions of gender roles in their relations and interactions with each other. Thus, the realization of women's liberation uh, and uh, equality status at the practical level still has a long way to go. So that is Junxia's contribution. Wow, that's really interesting. I wonder, just really quickly, um, seeing if you could, if you could sort of think from your own perspective, do you think that this contribution can help us in uh, in application to Western folklore studies as well, or do you think it's pretty localized to China? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I think uh, it definitely could contribute to broader scholarship about feminism and gender studies in the West. Uh, I think, uh, in, especially in not only in folklore studies and also in uh, China studies broadly, we often focus the role of the state and also the market in shaping the discourse and the practice uh, of feminism uh, or uh, feminist movements in contemporary China. Sometimes we didn't pay enough attention to the role of women in their daily lives and in their daily practice. I think uh, right now I'm actually working on a new project about the uh, transmission of uh, Buddhism among lay women in contemporary China. So I also started to study women and gender in China. So I think definitely uh, I also draw lots of inspiration from Junxia's research. I think right now we need to pay more attention to the uh, living oral histories of women in contemporary China and their struggles. And uh, we, we need to see what we could do to help uh, not only uh, women in China, but also uh, people everywhere to achieve gender equality worldwide. Yeah. Um, also, I think that yeah, there's something specific about China. I mean, that especially like the local practice relating to what we call the patriarchal <laughs> tradition in China, and also how like the intimate 
relationship between people, how people uh, uh, interact with um, with their family members, relatives, which is like uh, largely uh, or closely, um, I'm not confined, but we will say contingent to local context and local tradition. And, and that might be the, I mean, the practice of family relationship and, or of gift giving, which were discussed in Jinsha's chapter, um, might be different between China and the United States. But I think one major contribution of Junxia's research, and which could also be applied in the United States, is the strength uh, of folklore research or folkloristic perspectives um, or, uh, in, the, in the gender studies or, or in what we, what Jinxia called the uh, liberation of the, the, the women. Uh, um, so we, we see the political power uh, in, uh, in, in her research or in this kind of research, or, or we, can, we can see the role uh, folklore studies can play in the larger cultural political sphere of the society. Oh, that's really fascinating. Um, I think I think in some ways this um, sort of the question about how we can take something, some specific information, and bring it to this sort of more larger or worldwide questions about the role of folklorists in different public spheres is also something that we can sort of take from uh, the next chapter, which is Levy Gibbs's contribution. And I'll just take a second to say we've had him here on uh, New Books and Folklore before to talk about his book, Song King, which is a, a different episode that people, if they've listened this far, can also listen to. Um, but um, this contribution, uh, again, uh, similar to the book, is taking on this question of uh, folk, folk singing, and particularly he's looking again at Wang Xiangrong, this uh, folk song king of northern of northern China, northwest China, uh, and particularly his his experience with Shanbei uh, folk singing. Um, and I guess folklore, Chinese folklore studies has a long history of looking at folk song, as you sort of intimated in in discussing the introduction, Li Jun. Um, um, so. What are Chinese folklore studies' primary contributions to the study of folk song? And what to you is maybe the standout contribution from this chapter? Uh, I, th- I think that, yeah, I, I also heard the, your interview with Levy on his book, Song King, um, Connecting People, Places, and Past uh, uh, in contemporary China. So, I mean, the, he also talked about this. So I will be briefly um, touch the 
um, the, the content of this chapter. So, like you said, uh, Levy also explores the topic of folk song, which is one of the most significant genre in Chinese folklore studies. And I mean, like, like I said, the study of Chinese uh, folklore started with the collecting and studying of folk songs and ballads uh, in the early 20th century. Um, so, but, um, but I, I think like one major feature of Chinese folk song uh, practice uh, one thing is that how he relates to the uh, political, ideological uh, practice um, in the society. Um, so, that that we talked. Um, in this chapter or in his book in general. So a lot of those what we call song king or song queen, they, they, they are not only uh, have the status of like what we call the tradition bearer uh, from a particular place. Um, they are also uh, the symbol of a place, the symbol, the icon of a regional identity. And then this iconic or symbolic status or image um provides them with complex uh or multi-layer uh roles and functions and identities um in society um also it it provides them the channel um to what levy called mini making through their performances in different contexts. So okay. I think that's that's one thing that's very special or particular about Chinese folk song practice in the contemporary society. And also there's the thing about heritage, but I mean that that might be another aspect of it. Right, right. Mm. Um yeah, I think I think that all makes sense and I think we'll also touch on heritage more in a minute. Um mm -hmm. following Levy's chapter, uh seeing this is your own chapter, um and it's looking at um myth and it stems from your folklore uh your fieldwork in Shanxi province. Um 
what can you sort of briefly introduce and we'll we'll hopefully talk about this more when we get you on this podcast for your book um but what are the myths of yao and xun and um how does your chapter help us understand new trends in chinese folklore studies uh, thank you so much for the great question um uh, so yao and xun are uh asian sage kings uh, who lived about uh, 4,200 years ago. So I did my fieldwork in Hongtong uh, County, Sanxi Province. Uh, so it's Hongtong County is under the administration of Lingfen City. And Lingfen is believed to be the place where Emperor Yao established his uh, capital. Right now, there, there are some archaeological discoveries to prove the possibility uh, that Yao once established his capital there. Um, and uh, I mainly stayed in Yangxie village in Hongtong. And Yangxie is believed to be the hometown, uh, the second hometown of Emperor Yao. And it is believed to be the place where uh, Yao's daughter Nu Ying was born. So Yao... Uh, Based on local legends, Yao had two daughters, Erhuang and Nuying. Um, so after Yao became old, uh, he tried to seek talents and find a capable man to run the country. He didn't want to give the throne to his own sons because he thought that they were not capable enough. So he found Shun and married Erhuang and Nuying to Shun and then tested Shun in many ways. So later, he gave the throne to Emperor Shun. So in my study, uh, the uh, local people from Hongtong actually worship uh, Yao and Shun as uh, Asian ancestors, especially people from Yangxie called Yao uh, grandpa, uh, and they called Erhuang Nuying aunties uh, gugu. Uh, so from my research, I tried to uh, use the local people's uh, perspectives to interpret the value and the significance of Yao and Shun, as well as Erhuang and Nuying. So Yao and Shun's stories uh, were reified as myths uh, in uh, Chinese uh, uh, hist- in Chinese folklore studies. I actually prob- pr- problematized that reification. I think we should definitely draw on local people's Per, uh, vernacular perspective toward Yao and Shun and see how I understand their stories, the stories and beliefs. Especially in my own research, I uh, my I focus on one important cultural figure. His name is Li Xuezi. I introduced uh, his life story and also how he started to uh, tell re- remake Yao and Shun's story in Hongtong in contemporary time. So my research is a combination of both history and ethnography. So I basically argue that we should we may combine the textual analysis and the ethnographic research together and to see how people really uh, remake myths on the ground in their daily lives. That is my chapter. Oh, that's really fascinating. So it's so uh, using. Uh, this combination of textual analysis and ethnographic research um, to 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 better understand how people are using myth in or I'll, I'll use air quotes we'll we'll say inverted commas myth in daily life um, um, 
That's really excellent and something that I can't wait to talk to you more about. <laughs> Thank um, you. Uh, and, and rounding things off, we have the final chapter, Li Jun, that is yours. Um, and it brings us in many ways to the most recently arrived form of folklore studies that is examined here, but also something you sort of ended your discussion of the introduction with, and that is heritage, cultural heritage. Um, now, China has been preserving as it were, preserving, again with inverted commas, um, culture for decades. Um, But heritage represents, the intangible cultural heritage and cultural heritage paradigms from UNESCO represents something that is somehow different from what came before. Uh, So I guess my my question is two-part for you. Uh, Firstly, how is heritage different from uh, what was done previously in China? regarding cultural preservation and what can the case of the Tulo residences uh, that you examine uh, tell us about China's heritage regime? Um, those are great questions. So uh, first, uh, how, how are the practice of Chinese heritage different. I think the first, the the most observable difference is the scale of the practice and discourse. Um, So now some people uh, will characterize it, the, the, the activity and relating to heritage in China as heritage fever or let's dramatically heritage movement. So we we don't hear that kind of word in the United States, I think. Um, So just to illustrate the scale of um, heritage practice in China, I'm going to provide you some numbers, like statistic numbers. So by the end of 2018, um, there were uh, 40 UNESCO ICH items, um, 1,372 national ICH items and more than 15,000 provincial ICH items in China. Uh, uh, In addition to this, there were 55 UNESCO natural and cultural heritage sites. Uh, I mean, the number is still growing. Uh, In China, we also have what we call the ICH or representative ICH inheritors, which is similar to the heritage fellows in the United States. So across the country, there there were more more than 3,000 national representative ICH inheritors and, and more, more than 16,000 uh, inheritors on the provincial level. Uh, 
also there are um a lot of um institutes um uh, who runs training programs uh education events for um for the heritage um practice so um there were more than six hundred i c h training programs organized by over one hundred higher education institutes so this is this statistics illustrates the scale um of heritage practice in china um another f- major feature uh in of heritage practice in china uh i think is that uh, it is uh contextualized by the what we call the capitalist oriented economic practice and the socialist um uh, political system so uh in terms of the institutional practice of heritage in china uh there there's a top down uh institutional um organizations or or institutional system that frames um the public practice uh of heritage in china so on the national level uh we have the national ministry of culture um uh under which there is the division of intangible cultural heritage uh um uh which governs the um ICH uh, activities and uh, there's also the national bureau of cultural heritage uh, as well as the chinese academy of cultural heritage which focuses on the tangible heritage and then there are also provincial and county level agencies uh of this uh ICH and tangible heritage uh, uh institutions um and then they this uh these are official or governmental ag- agents or agencies um they plays a vital role uh in the current heritage practice in china and then at the same time i think the the capitalist <laughs> or capitalism oriented economic practice also have a, a important uh, uh impact uh uh on chinese heritage practice uh we see all those uh uh adaptation uh 
of uh, ICH or cultural heritage in the economic sector, uh, such as the development of tourism, um, the development of uh, uh, of the cultural uh, products based on uh, the inscribed or or even non inscribed uh, ICH or heritage items. Um, so, uh, referring to your second question about too low, I think I'm talking about the nomination of Tulo as UNESCO Heritage uh, under the context or framework of what I just uh, uh, talked about, which is the, the national top-down uh, institutionalized system and the economically oriented um, incentives <laughs> for the heritage nomination. So uh, also uh, how I think uh, a specific um, aspect I want to point out is that how the local government uh, as a player in this uh, heritage nomination and the heritage uh, economic uh, practice, uh, how, how they as local official agency uh, plays a role in connecting the local community with the national agency and with the international organizations such as the UNESCO. Um, uh, I think this is something that haven't been, um, oh, I mean, haven't uh, attracted a lot of attention in scholarly um, investigation of um, heritage studies, and, and which is actually very important because they, the local uh, government um, on uh, the actual um, agency or the actual player who implement the international and national um, heritage uh, policy is uh, the or, or regulations um, also they are the uh, intermediate uh, or the medium um, between the local community and the higher level um, agencies. That's going to be a really great chapter. I can't wait to read it again or read more of it because I think it's making an important contribution to sort of the critical heritage studies uh, side of the discipline. So, um, well, those are the five chapters of the book and we've taken up a lot of your time already. Um, so 
uh, as we depart, I'd like to give you, I'd like to ask you sort of our final, our standard final question, which is, um, and maybe we'll go lead you in first. What are you working on now? Uh, so my, my current project uh, is a book, a monograph related to my chapter in, in this volume. So this, uh, this uh, manuscript uh, is tentatively titled Living Within Heritage, Glow as Vernacular Architecture, Glo- Global Asset, and Tourist Destination. So the, this book is based on my fieldwork uh, undertaken in Southeast China in the Fujian province. Um, so it will consider the social ramifications of major legal, economic, touristic, uh, preservationist interventions that together transform everyday life words into formal expression of national and international cultural heritage. So um, like the chapter uh, in the volume, uh, my ethnography centers on the case of Hakka communities um, that now made famous for their vernacular architecture style we call Tulo, which is uh, the large uh, multi-story rent earth building for communal living um, in, in Southeast China. Um, so this book will tell the story of the heritage heritageization and museumification of Tulo communities, uh, focusing on the experience of people living not only with, but inside domestic buildings and home communities that have become re-objectified for consumption by outsiders. Uh, my, My second project is a co-authored book um, tentatively titled Putting Baskets to Work in Southwest China. So this book will based on research that I have conducted with um, binational team of Chinese and American colleagues in Southwest China. So this is part of the uh, China-U.S. folklore uh, collaboration projects. Um, so um, in Southwest China, um, baskets are an essential part of people's everyday life and th- throughout this region. Um, rural people, they make and they sell and give and buy and use bamboo baskets in, in an extraordinary range of forms. So uh, this book will introduce readers to the, the lived worlds of baskets 
today uh, in uh, focusing on the rich encounters with people whose lives are woven together with these uh, elaborate but practical objects of handcraft. Sounds fantastic. You got a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And seeing what are you working on now? Um, so I need to do some advertisement about my own book first. So my uh, new book, uh, Folk, Literary, Folk Literary Contested Tradition and Heritage in Contemporary China, will be published by Indiana University Press this March. So right now I'm working on two new projects. The first project, uh, the first project build, builds on recent scholarship of heritage regime to study the emergence of an alcohol regime in contemporary China with the convenience of alcohol, science, state market, heritage, and tourism. My case study is on fenjiu, or fen alcohol, one of the most well-known Chinese liquors made from grain produced in Fenyang, Shanxi province. So I did my field work last summer. So now I'm trying to write uh, one article first. My second project is about the religious practice of lay Buddhist women in contemporary China. This is a collaborative project uh, among my students and also with some colleagues in religions uh, in the Department of Religious Studies uh, at the College Worcester. Uh, so for this project, we will focus on women's role uh, in the formation of lay Buddhist communities, uh, their engagement in uh, charities, and their uh, contribution to producing new forms of social and cultural identities. Right now, I'm co-writing a paper about lay Buddhist communities and folk literati in Ziyin Temple in Shanxi with my student Bai Haohang and the Professor Ma Graham uh, in the Department of Religion Studies at the College Worcester. Oh, I hope I could finish it <laughs> very quickly. Those sound like two fantastic projects. Um, well, thank you guys both so much for coming on and, and talking to us. Um, it's been really interesting. And let me just say, I don't know if I would have the guts to to do this in my second language. Um, so, um, and, and this was a really fascinating talk and I really appreciate it. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Yeah, no worries. Thank you.